Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next 50 years. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul. I'm the co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a technology platform where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to accelerate the development of new therapeutics. I'm also excited to introduce our guest, Sven Carlson, who's the COO, CBO, and co-founder of Platelet Biogenesis. I'll hand it over to Sven so he can provide his background on what the company is working on and how he got to where he is now. My name is Sven Carlson. As mentioned, I'm the COO, CBO, and co-founder of Platelet Biogenesis. At Platelet Biogenesis, we are a preclinical stage cell therapy company. We make platelets from induced pluripotent stem cells. For those of you who don't know, the cells in your blood that stop you from bleeding, so any major surgery, trauma, any major uh, chemotherapy, etc., typically requires a platelet transfusion. So over 2 million platelet units are transfused every year in the U.S., and every single one of these platelets comes from a volunteer human donor. Now, unlike red blood cells or plasma that can be stored in the fridge or stored frozen, platelets have to be stored at room temperature, which means they have a very short shelf life of just five days. You typically spend about two of those days screening them for bacteria and viruses, a third day in transit, so by the time a platelet unit gets put on the shelf at a hospital and is ready to be transfused, it typically has less than a two-day shelf life remaining. So what we're able to do at platelet biogenesis is start with a single clinical-grade induced pluripotent stem cell and basically through a differentiation process turn these stem cells into megakaryocytes, which are the large parent cells to platelets. And then we take these megakaryocytes and we put them in a microfluidic device that mimics the architecture of human bone marrow. And by exerting these shear forces on the megakaryocytes, we're able to trigger them to turn into platelets at much higher yields and much higher quality than what you would get in a sort of static cell culture environment. Now by doing this, we're able to create a scalable platelet platform, which means we can replace all the donor-based platelet units that are transfused today with a more scalable, sterile, cheaper, safer alternative for patients. And that's really sort of product number one. Product number two, three, four, five, six, seven are really then leveraging these platelets for all sorts of different therapeutic purposes. So platelets uh, obviously travel through your entire body. They touch every major organ. And while they're best known as the cells in your blood that stop you from bleeding, the other major role they play is they're one of your body's natural transport vehicles. So they're constantly picking up different factors and antibodies and cytokines from one place in your body and then delivering them to another location. So by manufacturing these cells, we're essentially able to hijack that transportation network and use these cells to deliver theoretically whatever we want, wherever we want, Of course, there are easier things to go after. So for example, uh, cancer or or tumor cells will coat themselves with platelets to hide from the immune system, and they use all the growth factors in platelets to feed them. And so what we're able to do is hijack that cargo of growth factors and swap it out with a a checkpoint inhibitor or really any anti-cancer drug of your choice and use these cells to deliver those drugs directly to the site of the tumor. So that's sort of high level what we're working on at Platelet Biogenesis. And I would love to just understand the founding story behind Platelet Biogenesis, how you started the company along with other folks and and what you were doing at the time when you started it. So uh, probably unlike many of your other guests, I am not a scientist by training. I actually came at this from a bit of the the other direction. I initially worked in M&A at JP Morgan for several years. I moved up to Boston following business school about six, seven years ago. And about four or five years ago, I met my two co-founders, Jonathan and Joe, who had essentially developed this technology in their academic lab at Harvard. 
they were really interested in spinning this out into a company, and I was working in venture at the time and was really interested in getting into the, you know, the entrepreneur side of it. And so we, we teamed up and spent about a year or so sort of doing the, the typical legwork to get the company off the ground, and about three and a half years ago or so hired our first employee, uh, Leah, who's still with us today, and have since then grown the team to over 30 folks. Uh, we're in Cambridge now, moving to some much bigger space in Watertown early next year, which we're pretty excited about. Yeah, I guess a quick question. You know, most entrepreneurs, after they go through sort of a founding journey and the businesses doing well and advancing like PPG, often reflect and say, you know, I wish I did one or two things differently if I was to do it again or if I could go back and do it again. What's the top one on your list? We actually did everything perfectly the first time, so... <laughs> It's always easy to sort of look back and sort of wish you did things differently. I mean, I think for us, there's probably times where we could have been more aggressive in some of the decisions we made and sort of the hiring plan that we did. You know, it's always easy to look back in retrospect and think, well, you know, the financing would have been there, so we should have just done it at the time. But when you're in that moment, you don't know if the the next round of capital is going to be there in three months or six months or ever, right? And so I think a lot of that comes back to sort of saying, oh, man, I, I wish I had known what the future held so I could have done things a little bit more aggressively or done things in parallel that otherwise I, I did in series in retrospect. So I think that's where most of those decisions come down to for us. In terms of broad themes that we would uh, like to cover today, there's a handful that we'd love to chat about. One is just the you know, your viewpoint and perspective on cell therapy and where it stands uh, right now and, and what you've been seeing being one of the pioneers in a, in a relatively new field over the last couple of years. Let's start there and then we can, we can talk a little bit about manufacturing challenges and other challenges that you're seeing uh, within the space. I mean, there's a couple different ways to think about those, those topics. Obviously, cell therapy is a really big space. You know, from my perspective, I sort of think of cell therapy maybe, you know, two decades behind where monoclonal antibodies are, certainly as you think about some of the manufacturing challenges and sort of the different infrastructure and expertise around it supported, maybe five years behind where gene therapy is at this point. So, you know, very close to sort of making that next turn into the clinic for many, many different programs, but still definitely in early stages, which I think is super exciting, right? Because that's usually when some of the most exciting companies are formed and some of the most exciting therapies are created. In cell therapy, you know, there's obviously many different flavors to that as well. I mean, CAR-T therapies, you know, five, 10 years ago, those were totally new and novel. And here, you know, where we are today, I think there's probably 100 CAR-T companies out there and a new one getting launched every other week with a slightly different iteration on it. And, you know, all of those are, are critical elements and they bring critical therapies to patients. But it's definitely not where the space was five years ago, where everything was just, you know, brand new and, and, and really creative. And so I think where we sort of fit into the picture and other companies like ours is sort of the next phase of cell therapy, which is really thinking about, you know, are there other cells other than white blood cells in the body, right? Which, of course, there are. And, and what are the best cells to use for some of these different applications? You know, red blood cells are, are an interesting option because, at least in your body, they're a nucleate. Uh, Rubius is obviously pursuing that route. We're pursuing platelets, which we think are particularly interesting because they are also naturally a nucleate cells. They are terminally differentiated, of course, and they naturally travel to the site of injury, the site of inflammation, the site of tumors. So I think we're really in the next stage where people are starting to think about red blood cells, platelets, NK cells, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to see some really interesting approaches coming out of that. Yeah, you know, it's um, as you think about the investments being made in cell therapies, another area of interest also sort of gene therapies as well, right? What do you think sort of the totality of modalities are going to look like? 
say, in 5, 10, 15 years, because you preface the comment with how cell therapies are 20 years behind where sort of where monoclonal antibodies are today. And so even over the past, say, 5 to 10 years, we've seen a proliferation of modalities, right? Cell therapies, gene therapies, biologics, digital therapeutics, right? What do you think that's going to look like, say, 5, 10, 15, 50 years down the road? I would say I have no idea. <laughs> I hope it's. Uh, I hope we keep finding new ones, right? Because certainly at the, the pace we're sort of looking at right now, or at least over the past decade, I think it's really exciting to think of the number of new therapies we're creating that were really just totally theoretical uh, even back then. And so I hope that sort of pace of innovation picks up. I suspect it's probably not going to be quite the case. I think there's going to be more refinement of the existing treatments and maybe more bells and whistles added to the existing approaches. I mean, for us specifically, just thinking about platelets, I mean, there's just hundreds, if not you know, thousands of things that we could do with them, right? If you have a, a cell that travels through your body and you can theoretically put whatever you want on the outside to target it wherever you want it to go, and you can put whatever you want in the inside or combination of things on the inside that are then hidden during the, the, the transport, there's any number of different things that you could do with that type of vehicle. So I suspect it will be more customization around the types of therapies that are created, more customization around the patient populations you're able to select for, et cetera. But I'm optimistic that we'll find brand new ones as well. Well, you know, it, you know, your approach around leveraging platelets also strikes me to have an analogy to biologics as an example, because one of the areas of interest today are, say, ADCs, right? Where you're taking a small molecule and you're pairing it with a large molecule. I feel like CAR-Ts, uh, as an example, or gene therapies don't necessarily have that natural symbiotic approach, but platelets uniquely do, right? To your point, factors, biologics, even small molecules could potentially be integrated. So I'm curious if it's the optimization or the bells and whistles that you point out are perhaps more of these combinations of different modalities, perhaps, than just necessarily entirely new ones. Yeah, I think, you're, I mean, the combination piece is absolutely critical and something we're in very, very early stages of. Um, you know, my co-founder, uh, Joe Italiano, uh, was a postdoc under Judah Folkman, and, you know, 40 years ago, whatever that was, he was saying, you know, we're never going to kill cancer through one approach, right? It's going to have to be a combination of different approaches, and if we can take a vehicle like a platelet or whatever it is and deliver those combination of different approaches at the same time, it's likely going to be more effective than sort of doing them one-off and, and dealing with all the repercussions of you know, doing multiple different treatments in, in series. And given the proliferation of new modalities over the last couple of years, what were some of the key questions that you needed to answer during financing rounds, let's say? So, you know, how are you guys different? What were, what were some of the key questions that you needed to, to answer to be able to get investors over the, the initial hump? The most common one is usually, why has nobody done this before if it's such yeah. a good idea? Which yeah. is probably also the most frustrating one to hear as an entrepreneur because yeah. the whole point is that it's really hard to do and you're the first one doing it and you wouldn't be doing it if it had been done before. But you know, beyond that, I think the, the typical ones are around manufacturing, quality control, CMC processes, and the cost of goods associated with this. Again, when you're dealing with something like a cell therapy where you can't point to you know 10 years of cost declines, right? It's You're sort of have estimates for what things are going to look like in the future, but until you go and do the science and do the experiments, you don't know the answer to those questions. You know, certainly, you know, again, taking the, the page out of the monoclonal antibody book, we can look at the cost curves in that industry over 20 years and feel very confident that bringing costs down by an order of magnitude is going to be easy relative to what they did. But again, until we do the science, we're not going to know. Um, so I'd say that, you know, certainly on the team building side, you know, we were a team of first-time founders, um, so certainly talking through our thought process and how to build a company and, and overcoming sort of natural investor skepticism of 
does it work the first time that you do it or is, does it require a team of people who have done this before? Um, so I'd say there's a number of different elements there, but those are probably the most common ones. And given that you are approaching such a new treatment modality, um, from, from a scientific perspective, and, and we touched a bit on, on just manufacturing and some of the challenges with manufacturing, are you, are you seeing that there are enough uh, external providers that can help with some of these novel techniques, or are you realizing that there's a gap and, and you'll need to do a lot of it yourself? I think in cell therapy, and this is probably true of any you know, truly novel approach, right, is that if you're doing something that's truly novel, then there's nobody you can turn to to do it for you, almost by definition. And so, you know, three, four years ago when we started off, we got a lot of advice from investors that we just needed to hire a CRO to go and do these things for us, and we yeah. should just outsource everything and become a virtual company. And it was very apparent to us then, and I think very apparent to everybody at this point that that's just not possible, right? If we want a CRO that can manufacture platelets from IPSCs, then we need to build that CRO, right? Which is essentially what we've done, right? At Platelet Biogenesis, we've built the best platelet biology lab, you know, in my opinion, in the world. Um, and now we are able to manufacture platelets at scale for ourselves. And certainly we view that as continuing to be a core competency as we grow, right? The, the more we can keep that expertise in-house and the more we can build that team and those manufacturing capabilities, both the team and the infrastructure, I think is critical uh, to, to sort of building the value of the company. That, no, that's great. I think the interesting thing about cell therapies in general is that you do have this pretty big hump from a CMC perspective. And I'd imagine from the early days uh, when and John and Joe, is it, uh, you know, were sort of developing the technology at, at HMS, they sort of had to think about manufacturing perhaps at least at a smaller scale, right? Have you found that a lot of those same techniques and approaches sort of scale as the company has grown, or have you had to also uh, innovate on the tooling and the measurement and all that sort of stuff too? I mean, scaling is always really hard. Uh, to Jonathan and Joe's credit, I'd say from the first day that they conceived the device, everything was around, you know, is this going to be commercially feasible someday? And so even as we scaled up to the first iteration of what we call sort of our one-channel device, we were really building the architecture. They were building the architecture such that in order to scale up, it wasn't a re-engineering exercise every single time. It was just putting, you know, instead of a one-channel device, we have 16 of those channels running in parallel. And now we have stacks of eight of those 16-channel devices running in parallel. And soon we're going to be up to 32 and then 64. Um, and so really, for us, it becomes a much more linear scaling exercise. But I think that is entirely driven by the fact that, you know, despite coming from an academic background, which I think some people view skeptically, Everything that they developed from day one was, can we make this a scalable process? Can we start with a clinical grade induced pluripotent stem cell and start of doing all this with a research grade and coming back and having to repeat it? Can we do everything with a serum-free, feeder-free process as opposed to creating something that makes an awesome platelet in a preclinical setting, but the day we want to go into the clinic, we have to re-engineer all the different steps of the process. So scaling is always really hard and continues to be challenging, but I think we're we're benefiting from that forethought. Mm, that's great. And, you know, it's always hard, at least in a software context, which, you know, both Rahul and I are more familiar with, you rarely see technology stacks scale in order of magnitude in terms of users, in terms of data, in terms of bandwidth, whatever it is. So it's interesting to sort of hear that in a scientific context, which is a thousand times harder, you guys have been able to sort of keep that ethos and that mindset such that whatever you're doing at the bench scale can translate to a CMC and then also the clinic longer term. Yeah, I mean, one of our one of our cultural values as a company is building a scalable process, which I think initially we thought of really as a just a scientific sort of ethos. And really, we've tried to adapt that to the entire business, right? So even on my side, on the operations side, when we're building processes or accounting systems or whatever, 
trying to think through if the company is 10 times larger, do we need 10 more people doing this? Or is this something that's going to work with you know two people when we grow 10 times? So I think that's a critical piece of it. Sort of back to your earlier question around some of the, the investor questions and also around the scaling. I think one of the most interesting ones we get is, you know, we show the improvements in efficiency we've seen over, you know, three years, over six months, even over three months. I mean, the, the iterations are just happening so quickly at this stage. And the question we always get is like, well, where do these where do these max out? Nobody knows, right? Like until we do the science, we're not gonna know. We know that the human body is incredibly efficient at making platelets, right? That we're making 10 to the 10, 10 to the 11 platelets every day. And so certainly there's not all that much energy required to do that. So if you think about energy in and platelets out, it should be way more efficient than what we're able to do in the lab. But we really don't know where those graphs are going to peak out. You know, when you mentioned sort of the, the peak or the optimization, it strikes me, uh, it, or I'm reminded of a phrase of peak oil. When we were growing up, right, think of how many times we read in like 95, in 2000, in 2008, you know, when we were going to hit peak oil right? And the, the goalpost keeps shifting and the timeline keeps shifting later and later in parks. I think technology gets better. We can access oil reserves. We never even knew existed, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Yeah. When the price is right, humans are really good at finding, <laughs> uh, finding new resources. So, you know, I think it certainly seems like a very promising area for both medicine as well as the cell therapy domain as a whole. But, you know, we'd love to learn a little bit about sort of that entrepreneurial journey, especially as you think about um, recruiting and, and talent. And, you know, we, we noticed that you guys recently hired a, a new CEO. Uh, we'd love to just sort of hear maybe some of your learnings or insights from that experience, because I'm sure a lot of the listeners uh, may be at least contemplating a similar journey to yours. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the, the team development and bringing the folks together we've been able to bring together has been, you know, one of the most rewarding parts of the entrepreneurial journey, so to speak. I'd say, going back to your question about early mistakes, I think one of the challenges, I don't know if this was necessarily a mistake so much as a challenge, given the way that we grew, which was quite organically, is that early on when you have three, four, five people, everybody's wearing, you know, a dozen different hats. And as you grow to 10 people, you know, everybody goes down to 10 hats. And as you go to 30 people we're at today, you know, people go down to two or three hats each. And sort of developing the org chart in a way, or the organizational structure in a way, that makes sense you know, when you're five or 10 people, but is also going to make sense as you scale to 30, 40, 50 people over time has certainly been a challenging area that we didn't necessarily sort of have on our radar when we started. And I think one of the things that we're incredibly excited about the entire founding team is bringing in Sam as our new CEO. He just joined about a month ago, coming from the gene therapy space. And certainly having gone through this sort of key part of the growth curve where we are today, where we're a couple years away from the clinic, uh, we're scaling quite quickly. Our mantra right now is sort of moving as fast as possible in order to get there and de-risking elements along the way as we can. And so bringing in somebody who's sort of been through that entire journey has been really beneficial for us as far as we think about managing the the entire team and sort of growing the team appropriately. I think it requires uh, quite a bit of humility to realize that there's some external firepower that's that's required when you hit a particular growth curve. What was that decision like internally, especially being a co-founder of the company, of what were you seeing areas where you could potentially improve the team, overall team, and, and dramatically change the success of the company? I mean, I think there were a number of areas. I think we realized as the company continued to grow that 
myself and my co-founder, Jonathan, were getting sort of further and further away from the day-to-day operations and that, you know, particularly for him as the, the CEO at that time, more of his time was really focused on fundraising and recruiting and managing people and much less time was actually focused on the science, which is not necessarily what we all signed up to do. So I think that was sort of a clear indication that we're reaching a point where we get benefit from it. Certainly, you know, as we continue to grow and we think about the types of investors we're going to be meeting with the future, having somebody who has those existing relationships and has gone through those sort of conversations, helping us steer the ship is going to be incredibly important as well. And I'm sure some of our listeners would be interested and perhaps they're thinking you know, there's a lot of interest in, in biotech these days and people from adjacent industries are thinking about getting into biotech. And given your background, your finance background, and now being at a rapidly scaling biotech, what's you know one piece of advice that you would offer folks that are coming from other industries and trying to get into biotech in terms of how to come to speed or, or just mindset that they should have? First off, I'd say that the timelines are really long. <laughs> so if you're working in tech and you're used to you know turning around development cycles in you know months or weeks, uh, that is certainly not the case in biotech. That you should be uh, getting ready for years uh, in order to get to data. Certainly not coming from the science background. That's one of the things that can drive me a little bit crazy. But for good reason, that's why it takes so long. The other piece of it is I'd say if your first conversation with somebody in biotech leaves you feeling like you have no idea what they're talking about, like don't let that scare you off. I think a lot of people in our industry are guilty of using really complicated words and lots of acronyms to make whatever they're doing sound really complicated and important. And I think if you are willing to ask really stupid questions and stop people every time they use an acronym and ask them what it means and and really try to understand sort of at a an almost visual or basic level how this all these different processes work together i think it's actually pretty approachable i mean even as a non-scientist now i can usually sit in science meetings and understand what's going on which is great and, and usually you know contribute in some small part to those discussions so i'd say just don't let people scare you away by them trying to make their jobs sound important. Yeah. Now, uh, given that you're a sort of a fast-growing sort of organization, there's always this tension I also feel between wanting to hire folks to have them on staff internally versus wanting to bring folks in, say, on demand or working with a CRO, et cetera, from a scientific standpoint. How do you advocate for folks to think through said choices given the quantity of um, options that exist. There's rarely a sort of cut and dry answer to that. The way the framework I try to think about it is this, is this a core competency that we want to own as a company, right? Is this something that two years from now we will be glad that we have built out this capability uh, in-house and that we will derive value from it as an organization? The answer is yes, then it's somebody that we should be hiring full-time, assuming we have the financial resources in order to do that. If it's something that you really need, it's going to be a three-month project, you know, you're doing a build-out and you need some help sort of understanding the nuances of how you determine if you're an ISO 8 or an ISO 7 facility, then that's probably not somebody you need on staff to do and probably something that's going to be way more efficient to bring in a consultant who's answered that question 10 times before to help you with. So there's obviously a huge spectrum in between those two options. But I try to think about it, you know, is this really, is this our core competency? Is this something we want to own? Or is this something that we just need a quick service, quick in biotech being six months a year, right? (laughs) Yeah. So maybe like an analogy in that circumstance would be manufacturing expertise for cell therapies probably is on more the in-house side of things, while say computer systems validation is perhaps more on the bring in to sort of help support 
in tactical. Yeah, ways. I'd say that's absolutely true. But it, you know, it changes, right? If you're in Again, if you're doing an antibody, then it would be almost silly to build out your own manufacturing capabilities today because there's so many other CROs and individuals who have already done that work. And for five or six million bucks, you can outsource that that development to somebody else. But if you're going to spend all your time tech transferring and training that other group to manufacture your product for you, then the question becomes, why are you spending all the time training their staff when you could be spending that time hiring your own staff or building your own capabilities? And so certainly for us, again, in cell therapy, and I think this is true of many cell therapy companies, maybe it's starting to change a little bit for CAR-T that's a little bit more mature. It's a pretty easy decision. And the other piece, just to add on to that a little bit, is I think about it sort of in the CapEx, OpEx framework. Mm. OpEx is something you're spending money on and you're not really, you know, you get a service back and that's it. And CapEx is something that you're investing in and you're creating value for the business over time. And so I try to put it in that framework as well where we're not spending money to build manufacturing we're investing money, mm-hmm. and through that investment, we are creating manufacturing, but we're actually creating more value for our shareholders by doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's also the kind of thing like around CapEx is that you have uh, not necessarily an annuity, but there's payback that happens you know, downstream, whether it's regular or irregular sort of cadence, which I think a manufacturing facility could potentially also do in terms of when it comes to capacity, when it comes to capability, when it comes to speed. And, right? and where the challenge becomes more for us on that side is, you know, how big is the facility? How long is it going to take to get built? Is it enough for the phase one or the phase two? Or is it, you know, enough to get all the way through the clinic? So I think those become the, the more challenging questions. For sure. Any other areas that you want to hopefully be able to, to comment on for the, for the audience? Uh, I'm sure as a rapidly growing organization, there must be some uh, key positions you're hoping also to fill, perhaps? Like many biotech companies in uh, the greater Boston area, we are actively hiring. If you have uh, any interest in in platelets, uh, even if your enthusiasm is not as great as mine, uh, <laughs> please, please look us up, both on the operations side and the uh, scientific side. We are very, very uh, actively expanding. Well, you know, Sven, thanks so much for joining us here today uh, on Biotech 2050. Really appreciate you uh, telling us not only about your own personal story, but then also about platelet biogenesis as well. And Looking forward to having you guys perhaps back on the podcast in the next couple of months or a year or so. Hopefully, maybe the timeframes will be slightly faster at that point than they are today. And you have some more exciting things to share with us then. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to our first episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is co-hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's produced by Jean Merlain, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.